All right. If you have your Bible, open and find the Old Testament book of Joshua. And we have been working our way through Joshua this summer, more or less chapter by chapter. We are to a point in the summer semester that if we're going to finish the book before the fall semester begins, uh, we're going to have to pick up the pace just a little bit. And uh, which is not all, all not an altogether bad uh, thing because the the if you're familiar with Joshua, the remainder of the book sort of lends itself to that that faster pace because from this point on the description of the battles uh, do get a little bit more concise. Then you have beginning in chapter 13 through all the way through 21 is is just a a, a list of how they divided up the land among the different tribes and so you can so forth like that you can you can move at a better clip so that being said we're going to finish our look at the second major section of joshua this morning i've told you a number of times if you've been here that the first major section of the book is is chapters one through five when when uh, the israelites are making their preparation to enter the promised land that god had promised to abraham they're preparing to do that. And then um, that's immediately followed. Chapter 6 through 12 is the second major section where they actually go in conquest to take that land. And, uh, and we've already looked at half of that second section. It began in chapter 6 with the battle for Jericho, well-known story, um, followed by chapters 7 and 8, which detailed their, their two attempts, the second one successful, at the city of Ai. And uh, it was eventually taken. And this morning, we're going to round out the remainder of the second section in Joshua, which means we're going to consider chapters 9 through 12 this morning. Uh, yeah, it's a challenge, but I think we can do it. If, you, if any of you were here a couple of summers ago, it feels like 400 years ago at this point, but just two summers ago, we studied through the minor prophets in the summer. And so which meant every week we were on a, covering a, a whole book of the Bible. So if we could do that then, we can do this now. Um, we're not, you know, it's normally our, our, our practice to read the whole passage before we start. We're not going to be able to do that this morning. That's all we would do if we did that. Um, but what I would like to do is read chapter 9 uh, because it's, it's, uh, it's a significant factor for the remainder of the chapters. When we read chapter 9, then I'll just try to make give an overview or just hit some highlights of the of the following chapters before we dive in. So that, that being said, uh, if you found Joshua 9 in your Bible, I never, only I've told you that, follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland and, and all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, heard of this they gathered together as one to fight against joshua and israel but when the inhabitants of gibeon heard what joshua had done to jericho and ai they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with uh, with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country. 
So now make a covenant with us. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, we, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? And they said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, uh, the king of, of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. By the way, just note in that, note of the things that they mention. They said they've come from a very distant country. They're really crafty. They, uh, they mention uh, old battles that we heard about the old. They, mentioned, they don't mention anything about Jericho or Ai uh, because if they are from a faraway country, news wouldn't have had time to travel that far. So just they're sly. Anyway, uh, verse 11. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go meet them and say to them we are your servants come now make a covenant with us here's our bread it was still warm liars it was still warm when we took it from our houses as for food for the journey on the day that we set out to come to you and now behold it's dry and crumbling these wineskins they were new when we filled them and behold they have burst and these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from uh, the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And then Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third days. Now their cities were Gibeon and those cities... Uh, but verse 18 but the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord the God of Israel then all the congregation murmured against the leaders but all the leaders said to the congregation we have we have sworn to them by the Lord the God of Israel and now we may not touch them this we will do to them let them live lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders said of them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, why did you deceive us, saying we are, from, we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed. And some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants, for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel. They did not kill them, but Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Um, and, uh, and so when you get to, uh, when you get to uh, chapter 10, uh, chapter 10 simply recounts what happened then sometime later after 
uh, this deal that the Gibeonites had made. Sometime later, when the territories uh, of the places around the Gibeonite cities, their, their erstwhile neighbors, uh, decided, I don't like what you just did, Gibeonites, and we're going to take vengeance on you for what you did. And we learn early, early verses of chapter 10 that kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Yarmouth, Lachish, Eglon, they went in league together, joining their verses, uh, forces. In verse 5, it says they encamped against Gibeon. Note, by the way, that in verse 6, these kings were collectively called kings of the Amorites. So I've, if you've been here this whole time, we've made m- mention several times to Genesis 15, 16, that uh, the, 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 the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. And God had been patient with the people of the Amorites. And this is just a, another clue that all the people in this land were figuratively referred to as the Amorites. Okay? But chapter 10 recounts how the battle went down. And Israel honored their covenant that they had just made in chapter 9 with the Gibeonites. They protected them. But the Lord, the Lord did most of the work. Uh, in verse 10 of chapter 10, he throws the enemies into a panic. Throws them into a panic. In verse 11, he, th- he, he literally throws down large stones on them from heaven. In verses 12 and 13, he causes the sun to stand still and prolong the daylight so that Israel could finish it off. Crazy. And uh, that completed, so with chapter 10, they complete their conquest of the southern territory of the promised land. In chapter 11, uh, they're going to turn their conquest to the northern territories. And much like we saw in chapter 10, uh, a number of the kings joined together, joined their forces to do battle against Israel. Verse 4 of chapter 11 emphasizes uh, the apparently overwhelming size of their army that was coming against Israel. And you, we'll, we'll make note of that a little bit later. Verse 18 says that they did battle for a long time with those kings. But verse 20, which we'll come back to in the third point this morning, says that it was the sovereign hand of the Lord uh, at work in their eventual defeat. And then chapter 12 is simply an itemized um, record, a list of all of those territories that were captured under Moses' leadership, and then subsequent to that, those captured under Joshua's leadership. And that ends the major, second major section of this book. Let's pray before we consider this more carefully. Oh, Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word, and we ask for your help as we study it this morning. Oh, Lord, would you please uh, give us eyes to see the truth in these words, and would you give us minds to understand it? Would you please give us hearts to embrace and love and accept and believe um, these words, and would you give us wills to obey whatever it calls us to do? Give me the help that I need to teach. Give us all ears to hear, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We would be here all day if we tried to mine out every little nugget of truth in this long of a passage. So I tried to just take away just a few things from the passage, three in particular that I want us to to think about. If you've been here throughout the study, you won't be surprised by what these three points are. And this is, um, as I've told you before, it's by God's design. Um, Preachers and teachers, and if you... If you, if you grow up to be a preacher or a teacher, uh, we face a, a pretty regular temptation, especially when teaching through a book like this. The temptation is um, to say something new 
and to say something um, different than what you said the week before. Um, because, you know, hey, I told them that last week. They don't want to hear the same thing over and over again. But the truth is, um, the text determines the sermon. The, the, the scripture dictates what the preacher and teacher ought to say. And so, sometimes, scripture hammers certain things over and over and over again. And that is for our instruction. And so, we better listen to it and hear it. So, the first thing we're going to consider this morning from this whole section is the sovereign mercy of the Lord. The sovereign mercy. We're going to see that predominantly in chapter 9 with the story of the Gibeonites and their deception of the Israelites. The sovereign mercy of the Lord. Second, as we consider ten, chapters 10 and 11 um, and the events and the battles that span both the southern territory and the northern territory, we're going to think about the sovereign power of the Lord. And then thirdly and finally, from the end of chapter 11, I, I kind of made brief reference to it, uh, a sobering verse at the end of chapter 11, we're going to think about the sovereign justice of the Lord. There, there's a sobering passage at the end of that chapter that um, it's an idea that's shocking when you read it here. Uh, it's also, though, an, an, an idea that you encounter when you come to the New Testament as well. And so uh, it'd be good if we could come to terms with it. Um, and then before we close, it won't be a fourth point. I just want to say a quick word from about chapter 12. So with that in mind, let's dive into chapter 9 and, and think first about the sovereign mercy of the Lord. If you've been reading Joshua chapter by chapter and moving along with us from the beginning, uh, you'll be kind of glad to get to a chapter like chapter 9 uh, where there is precious, well, no, there's no bloodshed. <laughs> there's no blood and guts. At least for a minute, there's not. And it's rather entertaining because you remember the story. The Gibeonites who actually lived right next door, they were only six miles from Jerusalem. Uh, they were apparently a significant group of people based on the reaction of their, again, erstwhile neighbors. Um, but they dressed in old clothes and they had old wineskins, had old bread, old, old sandals, da-da-da-da-da, and all that. And they come to be pretending like they're from a faraway land, you know, asking for mercy. Why do they act like this? Because um, it may be um, that uh, they uh, were familiar with some of what the law said. And in Deuteronomy 20, verses 10 to 18, the Lord specifies that if those come from a faraway land, you must welcome them. You must um, get, show them mercy, Right? And, uh, and so they did just that. We've come from a faraway land. And they offered to make a covenant with Israel on that basis. It's interesting that they bring bread and wine. It's, it's a common uh, covenant meal uh, element. Um, but Israel accepted this, this. And notice what the narrator specifically says in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 9. So, so the men took some of their provisions, comma, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Joshua made peace with them and covenant with them, let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So scripture right there in that one, it just sort of, they sort of impugn Israel for making um, this covenant in the first place and their foolishness for not asking the Lord for wisdom before they do anything. But it's interesting that the text does not linger there. All right, It doesn't linger there on the foolishness of Israel. It, it makes note of it here, but the rest of the text focuses on two things. One, on that, the fact that Israel will now have to keep this covenant that they've made with them, um, and they will. And two, 
what happens to the Gibeonites as a result of this covenant that they've made, even by cunning. And in both of these things, uh, the focus ends up, on, in my mind, on being on the sovereign mercy of the Lord, on the Gibeonites, who were as wicked as anybody else in the land. That we've already made a, a, a lot of, uh, taken a lot of careful attention to that. But they were as wicked as any other people around them, but they, they shrewdly came seeking peace with Israel, even by deception and lying. And for it, though, the Lord showed them mercy. For one thing, how did he show them mercy? For one thing, he protected them in the very next chapter uh, from their enemies who formerly lived around them, uh, who came to attack the Gibeonites. They, weren't, they, didn't, they didn't encamp against Israel. It says they encamped against the Gibeonites. They wanted to get them back for, for their um, defection. And, uh, and on the one hand, that may be all that they wanted. Maybe that's all that the Gibeonites wanted. They wanted protection. Maybe they didn't like their neighbors, so they, they wanted protection from them. I don't know. Um, you know, it may be all that they wanted because when Joshua asked them, why did you deceive us like this? Look at their answer in verse 24. Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, so we feared greatly for our lives because you did this thing. Those of you in it, and we did this thing. So it could be all that the Gibeonites cared about was saving their own skin. Um, it may have been no more spiritual than that. We don't want to die. Um, and if that's all that they wanted, the Lord had mercy on them through this covenant. And he preserved their lives. Um, I think that would be sad if that's all that they wanted, and that's all what, but it's what they got. The Lord was even merciful to them in that way, though. They, if they, all they wanted for their lives to be spared, well, through the protection of the Israelites and through what we're going to see in the next point, the action of the Lord himself, their lives were spared. Um, but the, I think the, the mercy runs deeper than that. How? Well, when Joshua and the people of Israel realized that they had been punked, they were pretty mad about the whole thing. I mean, Joshua told them, Yes, they would honor the covenant that they, would, that they made and the Gibeonites could live among them, but the consequence for their deception would be that they would be cursed among them, that they would be nothing more than woodcutters and, and drawers of water. You might wonder, how in the world is that merciful of the Lord to, to, to curse them among the people like that? Well, for one, considering how all the other Canaanites and the Amorites would fare in this ordeal, that's pretty good, Right? Um, that's a merciful outcome. But I want you to notice one more thing about this curse that shows you an even deeper mercy toward them. If you read the curse carefully, you'll notice that they weren't only cursed to be woodcutters and drawers of water, which, by the way, would have been a constant bit of work. Um, they weren't just cursed to be woodcutters and drawers of water generally among the people, right? But look again carefully at verse 23. Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. And again, down in verse 27. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water, yes, for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Ralph Davis 
quotes a commentator from 1881 who really well summarized the, the significance of those two verses and what they say. That commentator said, they were hereby brought into a situation where they would naturally acquire the knowledge of the true God and of his revealed will. Will They were made to dwell in the courts of the Lord's house, were honored with near access to him in the services of the sanctuary, and thus placed in circumstances eminently favorable to their spiritual and eternal interests. Had the Lord consigned them to a life of mere servitude to the people generally, they would have their lives saved from their enemies, right? They, they did in the very next chapter. But by the sovereign mercy of God, their servitude was more directed. Their servitude was servitude around the tabernacle and servitude around the altar of the Lord, where by that connection uh, to the truth of God and to the Scriptures for the rest of their lives... They could, through repentance and faith, be saved from their sins, not just from their enemies. If anything, this truth should confirm to us yet again that the Lord is more merciful than we often imagine Him to be. He is just and He is holy, but He is just as merciful. Not to dive too deeply into the theological weeds, but Christians have traditionally um, confessed faith in the doctrine of God's simplicity, simplicity, um, which, if there is a simple way to put that, no pun intended, um, it means that God doesn't possess his attributes. He is his attributes, okay? Just to have a little nerd fun. Why, why would it be wrong to say God possesses his attributes? Because if you said that God possesses his attributes, there's two problems with that. If he possesses his attributes, then those attributes are more fundamental than he is. It's like they, they existed before God did. If he possesses them, then if you take this attribute and this attribute and this, and you put them together, then you get God. But nothing is prior to God. So he doesn't possess his attributes. He is his attributes. But what, is that, what, what else does that mean? It means he, there is no attribute in God that takes prominence over another. Right? He is no more holy than he is merciful. He is just as merciful as he is holy and just. And he is infinite in all of them. So the story of the Gibeonites should encourage us of the, of the Lord's mercy toward us. In fact, the same way that the Lord showed mercy to his enemies here in Joshua, in the Gibeonites, he has promised mercy to us in Christ Jesus. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were the Gibeonites, Christ died for us. In verse 10 of Romans 5, For if while we were enemies of God, like the Gibeonites, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We're the Gibeonites in this story. But as we move ahead in this passage, we find a clear, just as clear a focus in chapters 10 and 11 on the sovereign power of the Lord. As we, as we mentioned 
earlier, the, the kings who lived in the territories right around the Gibeonites, they didn't really appreciate their defection to the Israelites. And so those five kings, as we saw, joined in league with each other, and they all desired, as it says in verse 4, to strike Gibeon. Let us strike Gibeon. And then verse 5, they encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. Of course, in their minds, Israel, we're cool with you. We just want the Gibeonites. But what in doing that, they're encamping against and making war against not only the Gibeonites, but those in covenant with them, Israel. And what's encouraging to read here, encouraging to me, a sinner, is the vehemence with which the Lord God defends not only Israel, but the Gibeonites um, in covenant with them. Sure, verse 9 says that Joshua came upon them suddenly and he made war on them. But in verse, that's only after the Lord, as we've seen so many times before, in verse 8 said, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. You. The Lord had already decreed the victory to take place before the battle began. But keep in mind then, as the story progresses, how the Lord decreed the victory. Joshua then had confidence to go out and fight, but how really was the victory won in this chapter? Joshua and Israel go out to do battle, but as they do that, verse 10 says that the Lord threw the enemies into a panic before Israel. I mean... That makes fighting a little easier when your enemy is already panicked before you ever get there. And as Israel begins to strike them and cause them to retreat, verse 11 actually says that the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. And by the way, the text is careful to say in that verse that the Lord killed more of them with stones than Israel did with swords. And then in verse 12 and 13 tells us the Lord miraculously lengthened the daylight of that day. And as the text put, puts it, caused the sun to stand still to finish their judgment on the enemies. I would add to that that in addition to the sovereign power displayed from the Lord in, in chapter 10, like I hinted at earlier, the fact that the Lord did all this for the protection of the Gibeonites as well as for the Israelites it's a good reminder uh, of the Lord's grace and mercy even to those who are grafted in like we Gentiles are into the covenant in Christ Jesus. You know, it's foreshadowing that. But still, you go to chapter 11. His sovereign power is on display in these chapters. And when in chapter 11, you know, they come to the northern territories and there's another league of kings that join together they are presented in chapter 11 as an overwhelming oppositional force to overcome. Verse 4 of chapter 11 says of the enemies who came out to fight Israel, says they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And it's presented in such a way right there that you're to be left with a, uh-oh, like a hopeless, helpless feeling. A vastly they're vastly outnumbered, vastly outweaponized. 
The problem, though, for that great army, as great as it was, is verse 6, that the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them. Verse 18 says that Joshua made war a long time with those kings, but by the, by the hand of the Lord, they, they conquered every city. If you come back in the fall, if you come, just stick with us in the fall, uh, next this next school year, fall and spring, in Sunday school, we're going to be studying through the book of Revelation. And there's a powerful passage in the book of Revelation that um, passages like this in chapter 11 remind me of. In Revelation chapter 11, the, the people of God look weak and small um, compared to the world. It, they look, the church looks, is persecuted, the church is beleaguered, Here's what, here's what Revelation verses 11, verses 9 and 10 says. For three and a half days, figurative, for three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations, that's from the world, will gaze at their dead bodies. That is the persecuted church. Will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. That is humiliation. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because of these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. The might of the world is, is so strong compared to the apparent weakness of the church and of the people of God, and the church looks easily to be defeated here. But the passage in Revelation 11 continues. But after three and a half days, figurative, but after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and a great fear fell on those who saw them. Then a, they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. And the world seems, I mean, that, that army seemed overwhelming to the people of Israel. And the world seems overwhelming to the church. The church is in retreat. The church is getting smaller. The world seems to be winning against the people of God. Yeah, it seems that way. They rejoice and they exchange presents over the humiliation of the church. But just like the power of God against this great army, a day will come when the sovereign power of God is displayed in the second coming of Christ and all will give glory to the God of heaven. But there's one more truth to be seen here before we close. We might actually have time to talk about this passage around our tables. Amazing. And that is this passage at the end of chapter 11 about the sovereign justice of the Lord. The sovereign justice of the Lord. We have focused on, in chapter 10, on his miraculous works that the Lord performed to overthrow the enemy army, throwing them into a panic, throwing down large stones from heaven, delaying the setting of the sun. And in chapter 11, in his giving that mighty army into the hands of the Israelites, contrary to every apparent expectation, 
But in the case of the battle against the northern territories in chapter 11, the narrator of the events adds yet another sobering announcement in chapter 11, verse 20. He says that it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord had commanded Moses. That's a hard statement to read. But it is, a, it, is a, it is a hard concept that is not isolated to this passage. It's repeated more than once in the New Testament. Three times in Romans chapter 1. Paul writes that there came a time when God gave up he gave up those who steadfastly refused to repent. God gave them up. We've noted several times the statement in Genesis 15, 16 that the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. God was patiently enduring their wickedness, delaying the execution of his judgment against them. We've already noted, we don't have to go there, Leviticus 18 describing how horrible it was. This passage, just like Romans 1, and in one in the pastoral epistles where God sent a strong delusion on them so that they would not repent. I mean, the Scripture just mentions no words that it is entirely within the prerogative of God to harden the heart of a sinner who continues steadfastly in unrepentance. He did it with Pharaoh. He did it here. He did it in Romans 1. He did it in the pastoral epistles. And there are other places, Old Testament and New Testament. What do we take from that? It is not up to us to try to figure out the ways and the whims of God. It is up to us to hear His warnings and heed them urgently and urge other people to do the same. It's not unjust of God. If it is just of God to judge me at the end of the age, it is just of God to judge me right now before the end comes. So the Lord is as merciful as He is just, but the reverse is true as well. He is as just as He is merciful. But the chapter ends on a positive note, or the, 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 the section does. Well, the chapter does, actually. The last phrase of chapter 11 says, And the land had rest from war. Finally. The land had rest from war. And then chapter 12 simply recounts, Now that the battles were done, which victories did the Lord give through Moses and which did he give through Joshua? reminding us of the faithfulness of the Lord's promise to Abraham. He promised to give them rest in the land, and here they rested from war. Note that word rest. But if you connect Joshua to the rest of the Bible, rest of the Old Testament coming into the New Testament, this rest that they got in Joshua 11.23 this rest that they enjoyed is short-lived. 
It is a rest that leaves you longing for a deeper and a more lasting one. Hebrews chapter 4 in the New Testament acknowledges this. Hebrews 4.8 says, If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. When did he speak of another day later on? He did it in Psalm 95. There's another day of rest coming, and then Jesus comes on the scene, and he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. The New Testament makes clear that rest is found in Jesus, meaning Jesus is the promised land. And through faith in him, in his finished work, we are his people and he is our God forever and ever. Amen.